great to come out that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to him is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us here on this hump day, October 7th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. It is great to be here on the Progressive Voices Network. Our producer, Fong, is in studio. What's going on, Fong? Hi. I'm good. How are you? You good? You feeling good? Feeling pretty good. It's Tuesday. Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Okay. My bad. I keep mixing <laughs> those two days up. We're screwing each other up here. People on, uh, who listen to the Progressive Voices Network are going to be like, those two girls never know what day it is. Because <laughs> we're busy. We're so busy. <laughs> yeah, we're so busy. Or we're so sleepy. Or we just produce the show ahead of schedule sometimes. Yay. Yay. <laughs> the beautiful <laughs> life of those who live in San Francisco. And there are days when we're blocked out, you know, because... There's too much traffic or things going on. Like, I would never want to be in San Francisco on Fridays. Anyway, all right, Fong, thank you for playing with me here. <laughs> and let's get the program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. There's a new study that's just been released um, in, in, in kind of talking about some stats regarding homeless LGBT queer youths and sex, uh, human trafficking, as well as uh, the New York Police Department and the relationship to homeless queer youth. So with us today is a senior research associate in the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute, where her area of focus includes commercial sex economy, human trafficking, teen date, dating violence, and LGBTQ issues and victimization. And she's also quoted here in the article that's just been released on The Advocate regarding this new study. So Meredith, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Meredith Dink, by the way. I'm so sorry. I did not include your um, last name. So, uh, you know, let's get started by talking about this new study that's just been released and posted up at theadvocate.com. And, you know, we've talked a lot about homelessness that affects the LGBTQ community. And last year we had some alarming numbers in which when we talk about even homeless youths, over 40% of homeless youths here in this country uh, you know, or LGBTQ identified. This study here particularly, uh, particularly is just focused in New York, right? Correct. And, you know, something I wanted to bring up, I mean, when talking about homeless queer youths in New York, um, kind of, you know, the, the, the study that we're focusing on, we talk about uh, queer youths who engage in survival sex. Let's explain to our listeners what survival sex is. The, the best way, I think, the way that I usually explain this is to kind of think about this all on a spectrum um, and how people engage in the commercial sex trade. So on one side, you'll have individuals who were forced, frauded, or coerced into doing it, um, and that would fit under the human trafficking uh, federal laws in addition to many state laws. Uh, for youth in particular under the age of 18, even if you don't have somebody who's forcing you into doing it, 
so this third-party exploiter, they're still considered under definition to be a trafficking victim. Um, that said, a lot of the population and the youth that we interviewed for our study of the LGBTQ youth, um, we interviewed 283 young people about their experiences, and the way that they described um, what they essentially were doing was engaging in survival sex. And that was to have their basic needs met, because for the most part, many of them were homeless or are unstably housed and didn't really have access to a safe shelter, food, and other um, daily basic necessities. And so even if there wasn't a third party involved in their engagement in survival sex, um, you know, their choices were constrained, and this is kind of the middle of the spectrum. There's a lot of gray area there. Their choices were constrained. They really didn't have any other employment opportunities, any safety net that they could fall back on. And so they were engaging in this because they figured this was the best way for them to, to be able to eat and to be able to house themselves. And then all the way on the other side of that spectrum are individuals who willingly and voluntarily engage um, in commercial sex trade and have full agency over their choices. So for the, the youth that we interviewed for our study, they primarily fell in the gray constrained choice area. Um, and there were some young people who actually were also forced into doing it. And then a small percentage who said that they voluntarily did it. And it's really important that I started out the interview this way because there is this stigma, you know, especially when police are handling um, homeless uh, queer youths in, in kind of having the assumption that if they're engaged in survival sex that they're, you know, it's criminal activity and they're, you know, horrible people in society, right? Absolutely. The, the interviews we conducted, particularly with the New York Police Department, the NYPD, they, they looked at this, these young people as inherently criminal and criminogenic and that they were doing this, committing these crimes. In addition to, quote, prostitution, um, a lot of crimes associated with being homeless, quality of life crimes, uh, trespassing, subway fare evasion because they didn't have the money, in addition to some misdemeanor crimes like theft, um, and that, you know, they got more bang for their buck if they treated these young people as criminals versus trying to look at the entire situation as to why they were engaging in these various activities and, and trying to address it that way. Let's talk about, you know, the um, the treatment process. So when, you know, police are engaged with LGBT queer homeless youths, um, what is the treatment of LGBT queer youth, especially those who are, you know, engaged in survival sex? I mean, when they're encounter when they encounter LGBT queer youth, I mean, you know, it's like here in San Francisco, for example, um, there was a report or a study that came out in which they felt, you know, that that, that police had actually targeted trans. Um, women, you know, in the Tenderloin district, because they already had this assumption that all trans women engage in prostitution. So in this particular study, what did you find in terms of how police treated queer youths? It, it ranged. Uh, for the most part, uh, the young people, in the interviews with the young people, they, they talked about a lot of discrimination, uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, even in addition to sexual assault. And, you know, it, and again, it, it kind of ranged as to how, who, what police officers they were engaging with. Uh, young people said that sometimes they got a good police officer who was a lot friendlier um, and treated them a lot better. But uh, there were definitely a lot of experiences where 
you know, it, they just felt uncomfortable being around police. They avoided them as much as possible. Um, and when they did encounter them, it, it would, typically was not a, a good thing. And we asked about level of safety, if their arrest did occur um, from the point of the arrest through the processing at the precinct. And the vast majority of young people just did not feel safe. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Meredith Dank, a senior research associate in the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Um, Meredith, I wanted to also, you know, just kind of have a general conversation with you uh, about the topic. I, I mean, right now we're talking about police treatment a whole lot more in terms of, the, you know, media when it comes to, you know, even racial injustice. But here specifically today, we're talking about a study that you were a part of um, that affects LGBT queer youths. I mean, the, what's, what is the percentage of homeless youths who actually engage in survivor sex, at least according to the study that you conducted? Well, we, when we asked young people about their current living situation, the overwhelming majority of them were un, un, unstably housed. Only 11% um, said that they were living with family, but even if you kind of unpack that a little bit more, that didn't mean that it was a stable living situation that was in family. Um, you know, when we asked them kind of how, where they were spending their nights, it, it varied day to day. So young people who are lucky enough in New York, um, they're only, well, they just increased the bed, number of beds. It's 350 beds now for homeless youth, but you know, a study that was done in 2007 uh, said that there is a minimum of 4,000 young people um, who are homeless and on the streets in New York at a given time. So obviously the bed to actual youth ratio is, is not a good one. Um, so they might spend some nights in a youth shelter. They might spend some nights couch surfing with friends. And they might even spend some nights staying with family members. Um, but, you know, if you, again, looked at all 283 young people, the, the, there were only 11% who actually said that they had any kind of stay with a family member at some point. And I wanted to bring that up because, you know, when you talk about resources that are, you know, being <laughs> allocated to things uh, or to, you know, things like, um, uh, yeah, to to police and, and, and all that and the time that they're being spent, I, I, I just kind of wanted to point out, I mean, is, is it even – what do people not understand in terms of, you know, if you do – if you do get uh, targeted by police in in the engaged in sexual activity, uh, you know what what happens to you? Because I, I think what I wanted to go back at. I mean, to me, it's like police targeting queer youths or even queer people of color engaged in sexual um, or survival sex. Uh, it it just feels like most of it is is that's what it is. It's targeted. I mean, it's not like these numbers are so incredibly high that it's it it's problematic. Well, I think the interesting thing that, that came out of, one of the interesting things that came out of our study was that when we asked young people what they were being arrested for, only 9% said they were being, that they were arrested on a prostitution-related charge. So you've got 283 young people who have come forward and said that they're engaging in survival sex, um, but only 9% of those um, had been arrested on prostitution-related charges, and over 70% had been arrested at least once for something. So even if for example, you know, we were able to train all of our law enforcement um, about, you know, who these young people are, why they're engaging in survival sex, and that essentially they're, they're victims, and they're victims of many different things, um, and that they shouldn't be arrested. 
that if you're only looking at young people who've been arrested on prostitution-related charges for that, you're missing a very, very large majority of those young people who are being arrested on all these other kind of proxy charges that are related to being homeless and engaging in survival sex. That said, you know, a lot of the young people who were arrested on prostitution-related charges were cisgender female and trans female. So it's definitely, if there's targeting happening, it's, it's definitely towards that particular population. And when we spoke to the police, it's because they really just don't look at boys and boys engaging in, in, in the commercial sex trade. Um, they're not arresting them for that. They're usually finding something else to arrest them for. Meredith, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, what's next in terms of, you know, now that we know the information and the stats in the study, uh, obviously the, this isn't just focused in New York here, but it's a nationwide discussion. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us and our guest is Meredith Dank, a senior research associate in the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Meredith, right before we went on break, I just mentioned, you know, while the study that we're talking about is specific to New York, um, that doesn't mean that it's not a nationwide uh, situation, right? Correct. Absolutely. Uh, when this, this has been a series of reports. We released the first one in February and then the one specifically on the criminal justice interactions last week. And when the first report came out, we, I heard from people from all over the country that this is exactly what they were seeing in their backyard and um, that they were seeing the same issues that youth were facing um, both on the streets and cycling in and out of the criminal justice and child welfare systems. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to reflect on that. Um, 
a little bit in terms of now that the study's out and there will be more studies about this, I mean, there are solutions. There are things that, you know, uh, police, law enforcement can do today. I know that in Oakland, for example, um, they're starting a program, uh, you know, specific to trans women just to help with this this problem, this issue of targeting trans women and prostitution. Kind of what are your thoughts in terms of what law enforcement can consider uh, specific to LGBT queer youths? I think first and foremost is, you know, and the arrest-based response to youth engaged in survival sex, you know, at the federal, state, and local levels. There's been numerous safe harbor laws and other um, legislation and pieces out there that show the, the harm and damage that arresting young people for engaging in this happens. Um, obviously not specific solely to LGBTQ youth, but any young person in general. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest piece to this and what we always go back to is the access to low thresholds and voluntary and affirming services. And there is just a dearth across the country for LGBTQ youth um, with regards to housing, counseling, um, access to food, education, definitely employment opportunities. So, you know, the youth time and time again, time again said, you know, if only I had access to X, I wouldn't be doing Y. And I think that the, the you know, the response is how we should be responding is clear. Um, you know, obviously it takes resources. It takes, uh, you know, a lot of pushing and advocacy around why we need this. But we have the evidence to show that this can make a huge impact on these young people's lives. Um, so I think that's really important. And then specific to police departments all across the country, I think training is obviously very important, but there also needs to be transparency, accountability, and oversight with regards to that training. So if you're training police on how to, on how to treat and work with LGBTQ, not only youth, but population in general, um, there needs to be somebody, you know, looking and making sure that it's those rules and regulations that are passed are actually enforced properly. And then on the other side of that, you know, and kind of before everything gets better and laws are passed um, that makes it better for queer youths and queer people uh, who are homeless, you know, what are some things that those who are homeless today, especially queer youths, what can they consider do, doing or, or, or consider at all um, when confronted by police? Uh, what should they, you know, what should they be mindful of, I guess, is the question, especially if one would not know if they're breaking a particular law? Absolutely. I mean, over 70% of the young people that we interviewed had had some kind of interaction with law enforcement, and almost 20% um, had almost had weekly or daily interactions with law enforcement. And some of them knew what their rights are, but the vast majority did not. So I think it's really important to have young people um, educated uh, about what their rights are, and the organization I partnered with on this study, Streetwise and Safe, although they're a New York City-based organization, they do national Know Your Rights trainings, and their website is great and very youth-friendly, and so anybody could log on and kind of see what their rights are when it comes to, you know, dealing with police and police interactions. And I think arming yourself with education and, and things of like that is, is the perfect first step. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I'd love to have you back on. I know that we were very specific about the study today that affects LGBT queer, queer youths, but for what you do, I mean, you do a lot of research that um, is kind of, you know, uh, this is just one of many issues that you talk about, right? Absolutely, and I'd be, love to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Lena. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now, here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and our producer, Fong, is in studio. What's going on, Fong? Hey, um, I'm about to eat this pizza. <laughs> You're having pizza really early in the morning. I know. When I was walking around the studio, everyone was like, breakfast pizza? And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Today is an awesome day. I'm super excited because, well, I mean, this weekend's going to be exciting. Freeheld, the Ooh. movie played, uh, starring Ellen Page and Julianne Moore, is opening up in San Francisco. I think in, in, in some places it may have already opened up. So some of you may have already previewed or, or have viewed the, the movie. But, um, you know, Ellen Page and Julianne Moore play partners. Ooh. And it's the story about... Uh, Basically, um, 
this couple, you know, Julianne Moore's character plays this police officer who goes through terminal lung cancer and wants to transfer her pension over to her partner. Uh, I mean, this is all during a time when obviously marriage equality uh, was not legal. And, uh, you know, a panel of legislators in New Jersey had, uh, you know, continued to reject um, her request. And the case then became a national case. And so I won't go way into it because I think you have to see the movie. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I really applaud someone like Ellen Page who just came out. She's young and, you know, she's a producer in this film. Wow. Yeah. Um, So I'm telling you all this because dot, dot, dot. Yes, we will be interviewing Ellen Page and Julianne Moore. And so that's where I will be tonight, uh, which is the red carpet um, premiere in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm super excited for that. And then, you know, more exciting news. Um, I have not made any comments or statements on any of my social media yet and uh, have not written out, you know, or sent out the press release. Uh, But as of last night, um, you know, I've been elected board president of San Francisco Pride. Wow. Congrats. I don't know if it's congrats or if it's, you know, you better watch your back. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, let me throw some rainbow there and some glitter. (laughs) Um, No, I'm joking. You know, I am extremely excited. Uh, It's an exciting time for the organization. It's uh, obviously an exciting time as well for, you know, the LGBT movement. But um, to me, you know, especially recognizing the different intersections of my life as well mm-hmm. as the major issues that still continue to affect our community while we have marriage equality. There's still so much for us to work on, which is why we're here every day, Monday through Friday, four o'clock Pacific Standard Time, talking <laughs> about the things that still affect our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last night we closed the San Francisco Pride meeting in memorial of uh, of of a young trans woman who has been found mm-hmm. uh, murdered in Philadelphia and her name was Keisha. And so I really wanted to make sure that we also recognize that today on this program. Mm-hmm. All right. Enough about me. Cause it's about the show, or I should say it's about our guests on these, on the, on this program, which I'm always, always happy for. They're incredible people who come by the show and share their amazing work. Our program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is Raina Bow, which I love this. I'm just going to read her description right off of Huffington Post in which she's a contributor. But Raina Bow is the flamboyant alter ego of a professional teacher and humorist who considers herself an edutainer. I love it, about all things LGBT. Uh, She's the author of several best-selling novels and novellas, and she's turned her attention to nonfiction with LGBTQ uh, 101, I should say LGBTQ plus 101, and uh, a Q&A for all things gay. So let's welcome Raina Bowe to the program. Raina, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Good morning. Good morning. So, you know, let's start with the birth of Raina Bow. How, how did you, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, uh, you know, tell us the day um, you were born and a, how it all happened. Yeah, I was, um, I was a teacher in a, a small town on the Oregon coast and was kind of famous for dressing up for everything. Um, you know, if there was a dog parade, I dressed as a dog. I used to be a professional mascot, so you get a reputation. And one day uh, the town started hosting a pride festival. And one of my parents asked me, 
so are you going to wear a dress to the Pride Festival? And I said, well, I don't have one. And she said, well, I'll make you one. And one thing kind of led to another. Um, and I dressed up. I won't lie. I had a great time. I knew I'd have a great time. It surprised me how good of a time I had. Um, and so just sort of one thing led to another. And over evolution of about five or six years, I sort of became the, the town's resident middle school, high school teacher slash drag queen. And uh, that's where she comes from. That's so awesome. Um, you know, it's funny I say that, you know, when when was Rainbow born uh, in the community, you know, even sometimes with new queers, uh, you know, coming out in the community, we get tripped up on the politically correct terminology of different identities that are emerging within our communities. Uh, would you agree? I, you know, I, I'm always very conscious and aware of of, of labels and how people perceive things. I'm, I've, I've been a journalist off and on for a number of years, and right now I'm even working on my PhD in mass communication. And so I'm, I'm both intellectually and personally aware of, of labels because, you know, you, you apply a label to something which in your own mind is simply a descriptor. But for other people, it's, you know, much more than that. It's a very personal term. And as mindful as I am of it, I, I still stick my foot in it um, every once in a while. And so it's, you know, some people would define that as political correctness. I, I tend to think of it more just trying to be respectful of the other thing, of things mm-hmm. that other people consider important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I, I hear sometimes, especially for those who are not in our community, the LGBTQI community, and all, as you said, all things gay. Um, you know, sometimes mistaken drag queens uh, as, you know, uh, an identity within sexual orientation and or gender identity, especially now that there's so much focus and exposure on transgender, on the transgender community, you know, as a, uh, as a drag queen, I mean, I, I think that it's important for us to also note, you know, the his- historical importance of drag queens to our community and also... Uh, be very transparent about, you know, the, uh, the, what drag queens mean to our community. Well, yeah, if you look at, um, and I'm not going to lie and say I know all these names, but, you know, I read a great deal. And if you look at some of the photo history that people have done and documented, especially in places like New York, San Francisco, for a long time, drag queens were sort of uh, you know, almost the only face that the public seemed to allow gay people to have, which of course is really ironic because most, you know, again, the idea that every gay person is a drag queen is ridiculous. And yet somehow it seemed like, <clears throat> excuse me, society was willing to accept that. And so, you know, I think I, I'm not sure. I don't think people became drag queens simply so they could be part of the public discussion. Mm-hmm. But I think you saw a lot of drag queens that absolutely were leaders of the public discussion for the simple reason that they were quote unquote allowed to exist by the mainstream. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I want to, I want to turn our attention to your articles here that have been posted on the Huffington oh, Post, yeah. as I mentioned, you know, and, and you're very open with your articles, especially, you know, talking about your five-year-old daughter and, uh, you know, explaining the, the different identities and, and even yourself being a drag queen. Tell us about it. Well, you know, the, the one thing I figured out very early on, because I've, I've been a teacher for a long time and I've worked with kids for a long time, and, and the, first, the first rule with kids is, is they know when you're lying and they know when you're telling the truth. They know when you're trying to disambiguate the truth. And 
I just, with my daughter, it wasn't even a, for the most part, it was never a conscious choice. I just, like I say, I was living in this small town. My, my daughter is, you know, everybody knows her. I, I wrote this humor column for the local paper that was just very often about my adventures with my daughter. And so, you know, I'd go to a pride festival and she'd tag along with me. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't so much that, oh, he brought his daughter. It was more like, where is your daughter when I didn't bring her? And so, you know, it, um, I think it, it never occurred to me not to be anything but open with her because, you know, when you're in the bathroom putting on your makeup, what's a five-year-old girl do? She grabs it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I just, I've always been very honest with her. We explain things to her, you know, one of her, one of her babysitters. Um, one of those kids that worked in her daycare center um, is transgender. And so we've, we've talked a great deal about the fact that, you know, teacher Holly is now teacher Jared. And so, and, and she understands that, Um, you know, I mean, as far as much as a five-year-old can, you know, at that age, their, their idea, their idea of gender identity is pretty fluid. You know, to them, a person's a person. And so, you know, it just never occurred to me to be anything but open. Yeah. As I mentioned in that article, you know, when we would go out in public sometimes, you know, it's like, it's, you know, you walk into Walgreens and it's like, you know, you're looking for makeup. And so I'd always tell people it's for my wife, it was for a costume party, it was for this. And finally, one day my daughter, she didn't call me on it. She just wondered why I was doing it. And I was like, yeah, what message are you sending? So I stopped. And as a result, I now have a really good friend at Walgreens who helps me with everything. <laughs> Michelle Meow, we're speaking with Raina Bow, uh, who's an edutainer. I, I love that so much. Um, and we're talking about uh, just, you know, the different uh, expressions of identity, gen- gender identity, as well as sexual orientation and diversity within our community. Uh, Raina Bow also contributes to Huffington Post, and we're focusing on a couple articles here. And I want to stay in this topic of, you know, how sure. uh, being a parent. Uh, more and more stories are circulating out there in the media now of parents who uh, seem to be progressing in their ideas of uh, allowing their children to freely express themselves. Uh, you know, do you think that uh, maybe those those stories are just a few of the good ones or we, we really are progressing toward um, a much more, you know, open mind regarding our, our children and how, yeah, they express themselves and, and not have to fa- fall in that, you know, binary um, spectrum, if you will. I think, I, I guess the way I would define progress is you have moved forward from where you were. And so, yeah, you absolutely, I think, see more kids whose parents are willing to let them be themselves because, they've seen expressions in the media of what that means. I mean, we, we fear what we don't understand, especially when it comes to our children. Um, and just to put a very, you know, kind of broad generalization on it, there are a lot of people now that understand transgender because of Caitlyn Jenner. And so now if their child says that to them, they're may, you know, again, we don't know what their reaction is going to be, but at least now it's not, I don't know what that is. Um, but I, I think also, and so you have that group of parents, maybe the group that was already sort of at the liberal end of the spectrum, and it's like, okay, why not? This is not the end of the world. Um, but I also think you have parents that maybe were extremely conservative that this is still not something they approve of. It's not something they embrace. 
but they are slightly more tolerant of it than they used to be. I mean, I can give you an example from one of my classes is, you know, I was at a, we did a school assembly on, you know, preventing bullying, particularly kind of focused on LGBT issues. And, you know, I got up and front of the student body and, you know, said what they already knew, but you know, I'm, I'm bisexual and it, you know, da, 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 da. And a parent called up and was just irate that I had introduced that, that word to her daughter. She's like, why am I having to explain what that word means? And my principal, God bless her, came back and said, well, you know, our governor's bisexual, and that's a term that's been in the media a lot. Your daughter probably should know what it means, even if you don't approve of it. And, and the parent didn't really have anything to say to that, and she didn't yank the kid out of my class, which I thought she was going to. So is that progress? I guess it is. Um, so I, I just I define progress as people moving forward from where they were, and even if that means they're still nowhere near where we'd like them to be, at least it's a little bit further forward. Raina Bo, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I'd love to continue our discussion. Will you stay with us? Right. Yeah. All right. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this quick short break. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Fong, our producer, is in studio. Our guest is on the phone with us uh, today, Raina Bo. Raina Bo is a flamboyant alter ego of a professional teacher and humorist who calls him herself, I should say, Raina Bo. Uh, it, identifies as a woman as an edutainer um and that's that's see that's the thing is that you know we Raina we have to keep that in mind also you know freedom of expression of identity you know that that doesn't always mean that that's how the person identifies as far as gender or um 
you know, an alter ego is an alter ego. Yeah, I, it's, excuse me, it, it took me a long time to kind of figure out what all that meant. And, and even now, you know, I, uh, um, I, I teach at a, I teach at a university where now one of the standard questions we ask our students is, what pronouns do you want to go by? Because we don't want to assume. And so, you know, when I'm out as, when I'm out as Raina, people will say, you know, are you are he, she? And I'm, and, yeah, and I'm like, well, I, she. But I don't, I don't get hung up on the fact if somebody says he. You know, I, I, I think my, my take on it is, is that I understand for people that, for people that have been thinking one way, especially because I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my mid-40s, for people that have been thinking for one way for the, the entirety of their lives, even as progressive as they are, to sort of change that whole paradigm, God, I'm using that word, I should just shoot myself, um, <laughs> is, to change that is hard. And I think one of the things that I notice, because I, I work with a lot of younger people, is that some of them get very frustrated. It's like, why can't people understand this? And it's, you know, and it's, well, some people don't want to, and there's not much you can do about that. But even those that, but some of those that do are having a hard time wrapping their mind around all this. And right. So, I don't know. I just, I try right. to be patient. Right. I mean, there's some of us in the community who still, you know, kind of need to uh, learn, you know, what cisgender means and uh, gender fluidity, sexual fluidity, uh, non-binary, I mean, you name it. So I love, you know, kind of your description of what you say about your alter ego and in, in all things gay or LGBTQ uh, 101. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, does your daughter ever just kind of randomly choose how she wants to identify you? Uh, you know, some days she might identify you as your alter ego and some days uh, j- it's just plain old dad. It's just daddy. Just daddy. Um, you know, I'm I'm daddy, whether I'm in whether I'm in a dress, whether I'm in a pair of pants, um, you know, I'll say this, it kind of cracked me up one day. I was wearing, wearing something that didn't, you know, wasn't racy or anything, but I, you know, uncovered my arms and so, you know, shaved them, no big deal. And she was just, oh, daddy, I like that so much better. I am tired of you being scratchy. Don't ever get hairy again. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so now she's like, daddy, you need to shave. I'm like, oh. okay. <laughs> but again, that's just, that's a five-year-old take on the world. You were right. scratchy and itchy before, and now you're not, so keep it up. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People on the Internet, sometimes I feel like they think five-year-olds, you know, are like these uh, tiny adults, and they should act like one or something. I was just reading comments from the article that was posted about the dad who allowed his son to uh, be one of the characters of Frozen. Um I, I, I wanted to, you, you mentioned earlier uh, and touching briefly on, uh, you know, you identify as bisexual, correct? Yeah. And so, you know, it was just, it wasn't too long ago. We had Bisexual Awareness Week. Um, there's some stats in your article that you posted here on Huffington Post. Um, 0.4% of men identify themselves as bisexual. It, obviously, you're one. I can find. What's that? That was the latest number I could find. That, that number seems to be fluid, too. <laughs> yeah, I, let's talk about that. Um, you know, have you been fluid in your life? Um, you know, I, this is going to sound like a really weird thing to say, but because younger people don't understand this sometimes when I say it. When I grew up in the mid-'80s, there, there weren't gay people. There were gay icons. There was David Bowie, and there was Elton John, and these were people that, you know, were, were you know, Cap, capital letters gay because that's who they were. But in terms of 
everyday people, I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember knowing any, and I don't remember hearing about any. And 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 just you know, and that's when the AIDS epidemic first started, just racing through the community and everything else. And so, it never occurred to me I was, because there was, there was there was nobody to look at and say that's me. I mean, I, I don't think anybody. And I love Elton John, but I don't think at 16 years old I looked at Elton John and said, "Oh, that could be me." And and so I think, you know, for me it was, I when I finally became aware of what it meant uh, that it was an option. I was uh, I was a performer with Disney on Ice uh, for a few years, and you know you spend a lot of time just living with the same group of people. You live in hotels, you live backstage together. I mean, you spend more time with these people than you ever would your real family because your real family you could get away from. Um, and just one day, I noticed that. I was becoming attracted to people in the other dressing room um, and my own. And I was kind of like, I didn't know what that meant. And then I left the show and went back to a more kind of normal lifestyle. And so I shut it down. And it's like, I, I finally, um, you know, finally started listening, I guess. And so, you know, I don't, I wonder what it would be like if I, if, if I was coming of age now, if I would have figured it out about 20 years ahead of when I actually did. And I'll always wonder that because, um, you know, I made a lot of a lot of very hetero decisions because mm-hmm. I thought those were my only options. Right. Right. Which which some of us, uh, you know, can relate to <laughs> maybe yeah. all of us. Um, you know, you're an educator, uh, as you you know, if we described earlier. I mean, you're actually, yes, a, a, a teacher. Right. And yeah. Um, yeah. It, and I mean, I don't know, you know, the age range you teach, but I I wonder kind of like, where do you think, you know, where do you think the future's headed in terms of how we as humans identify each other? There once was a, uh, upon a time in which our parents dressed us in all blue if you, you know, were a boy and all pink if you were a girl. And I, I feel like with uh, so many different identities coming out and being proud of it, like even, you know, someone as young as Miley Cyrus, who absolutely embraces her pansexuality, um, yeah. you know, do you think that we might ever get to a place in society where we, we don't need the labels? I, I think... You know, I think there's always going to be things that are statistically normal in terms of the fact that the majority of people go a certain way. What I is because I wrote a I wrote a column on this um, and I haven't published it yet, but on what it means to be normal or heteronormative. And a friend of mine actually wrapped it up rather nicely. And what he said was, he said, you know, he said I, I would like our society to get to the point where it's like you see somebody with red hair. Yeah, somebody with red hair is statistically abnormal. They are not like everybody else, but nobody looks at somebody with red hair and goes, oh my God, why mm-hmm. do you have red hair? It's mm-hmm. just a, it's something that makes you distinct from the majority, but it doesn't make you any different than the majority. And, and I would like to think we're going in that direction. I think, I think it's going to take longer for, for people that, for for people that are born biologically male, I mean, we already live in a society where if you're a girl, it's perfectly okay to be a tomboy. If you're a boy, it's not okay to be a, you know, whatever, you know, I've heard it called princess girl or whatever. Right. Look in stores and there are some stores that are starting to kind of do this sort of, um, not transgender line, but they're fully marketing to the idea that we can step outside of our traditional roles, but like gender neutral, at, I guess, or a gender neutral. Yeah. But when you look at the options they offer, what they really offer is 
girls that want to dress like boys, but boys that want to dress like girls, uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think, I think that's going to take longer, but I'd like to think so. Well, you know, and, and, and kind of talking about that, I mean, you're a dad, and I think some of that comes from, you know, maybe uh, uh, men who, or, you know, this patriarchal society, let's just put it out there, that we live in, in, in that we don't necessarily see, um, you know, we want boys or men to, I guess, you know, not be masculine, if you will, right? Right. So as a dad, well, I feel like you're you're one step ahead of the the curve here, and with other dads, you may not see what you see, and and you know how you've been having open conversations with your daughter. What kind of advice would you give for dads out there today? Oh, geez. You know, I what I I mean, I'm obviously kind of at the extreme end of the spectrum in terms of modeling atypical male behaviors. But what I find is, is that most of the guys I know and most of the fathers I know are not stereotypical guys. They, they have feelings, they have emotions, they, they have a, you know, they, they have a side that is not what we would call prototype male. And what, what the very, very best parents I know do, and I've been very lucky, a lot of my, all my friends from high school became parents before I did. Um, and I've watched them raise their kids and been part of them raising their kids. And they have no problem showing their kids who they are, their authentic selves. And even if that doesn't subscribe to the, to the, the male stereotype, they are just themselves. And that's, that's all I would say is don't be someone you're not. I mean, if you don't cry at movies, you know, don't feel like you have to put an onion in your pocket so that you cry when Mufasa dies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> is... But if you do cry at movies, don't don't feel silly for doing it. And if you do, if there are things that you know, like like I know guys that listen to music and just you know it, it fills them with a you know just with a passion. You know, share that with your kids, and and don't be afraid that what you are isn't typical. I don't think there's anything typical if, if everybody really feels free to be themselves. Right. Right. I love it. And and I love what you represent. And, you know, before we let you go, we've got a couple minutes here. I should I should sure. mention this. I mean, you used to be a performer for Disney on Ice. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> this is so amazing. I played the Cow Palace more times than I can count. Oh, that's, that's so awesome. So, like, you know, what, what characters? Um, mainly, I was Max the dog in The Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> and ironically, it's, and I don't skate. I'm not an ice skater. Um, I taught myself to skate a little bit, but basically I ran around on all fours on spiked golf shoes with uh, crutches coming off one foot off my front arms, well, my, my arms, and then I ran on all fours on the ice. And my job was simply to follow around Prince Eric and, and bark at things and randomly pee on things that avoided me or that annoyed me. <laughs> that is so, so, so cool. Um, you know, I, I, being an adult in that world, uh, you mean, as it's got to allow you to just be free for, you know, the for a couple hours or something. I mean, what was the experience like? It was very, you know, it's interesting. In some ways, it was very liberating. Um, in some ways, it was kind of deadening in the fact that when you do an ice show, it's all on a soundtrack. So basically what you're doing is hit your marks, don't take out a skater, make sure the kids have a good time, which is fine. But I have to admit that after a while, I couldn't remember what show I was doing. I mean, I'd get off the ice and somebody would say, do you remember that scene, that last show? And I'm like, no, not so much. And I'd be out there, you know, writing notes to myself in my head and everything else. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I loved it. Um, I would 
I don't know that I'd still be doing it. It was 15 years ago, but it, it ended too soon for me because it was just a different city every week, sometimes a different country every month. Um, best learning experience I've ever had. Um, but I think there's this, let's put it this way, I had a definite idea of what show business was like. And, boy, by the time you finished a 15-hour day in a sweaty hot dog suit shooting photos for a, for a, a program, you're kind of like, this, this is not what I thought it would be. <laughs> but I did love it. No regret. Raina Bo, thank you so much for joining us here on this program. Um, I'm sure of it that you'll continue to write on Huffington Post, but uh, anything yeah. new you're working on? Um, you know, right now, I'm, uh, what, I, what I do is my, my, my blog on the Post is everything that's in my book, and I post one of those like every other week, and then I post something new every week. And so, you know, I, and this is a shameless plug, but I really wrote the book for people that are like, okay, my kid just walked in and told me I'm pansexual. What does that mean? Or, you know, what does gender identity mean? And so I tried to write everything in these little sort of thousand word missives. And I'm a humor writer, so I'm, you know, kind of snarky and kind of funny. And so it's just supposed to be a guidebook for people that want a quick read on what something means without all of the, you know, the inane analysis that you get when you're in a Ph.D. program, which is how I feel half the time these days. Well, and I love so, it. You know, it's, I'd, I'd like to think it's a good resource. So I'm, <laughs> I'm basically writing the next batch, but uh, I've still got quite a few to go of the old ones. I love it. I love it. Thanks again. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Have a great day. You too. You can follow Raina Bow on Twitter too, by the way, to follow, you know, just her, the, the thoughts and, and I'm sure of a post of, of her work at Queen Raina Bow. And that's spelled R A I N A B O W E. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this quick short break. Don't go away. Mm-hmm. 